0: What is domestic work? It's everything we do at home uh, to keep our home clean, to keep our home safe. It's about maintaining our families healthy and sound. Without it, all other work is impossible.
1: That's Elizabeth Tang. She lives in Hong Kong and she's leading the International Domestic Workers Federation. And I'm Bama Athreya, host of The Gig. This podcast is about the future of work, and this season we will focus on the world's oldest profession, domestic or care work. These are jobs that are essential everywhere in the world and for all of us, but they're often invisible. It's work that has been necessary ever since the rise of complex societies. And it's work that has a long history of being performed by slaves. Elizabeth will explain a little more about what this work includes.
0: It is about cleaning, cooking, laundry, ironing, shopping, caring for infants, children, caring for elderly people, caring for sick people. It's almost about everything we do in the private households.
1: You may be wondering what this has to do with the future of work. This podcast is about how technology is transforming every kind of work, even domestic work. In the first season of The Gig, one story developed a life of its own. Drivers on ride hailing apps around the world started organizing and pressuring platforms like Uber for change. But while I was interviewing those drivers, I was also interviewing lots of people about the ways in which technology was transforming the jobs you'd think were least likely to be digitized, jobs that take place inside people's homes. And in ways, it was very different from ride-hailing. I wanted to come back to that story for this season, which we've called, Who Cares? Even though I thought it wouldn't be the same exciting story of mass organizing, especially not in the face of the continued global pandemic, or maybe I spoke too soon. There is more organizing happening than we realize, and we'll hear from some of the people doing that. Before we get too far into that story, though, let's go back to Elizabeth and get a little more understanding
0: of the past and the present. Traditionally, and still in most places of the world today, it is work of women, of mothers, daughters, sisters. But of course, they are unpaid. But when they are paid, they are called domestic workers. And the majority, over 76%, are women.
1: Elizabeth told me that not only were most domestic workers women, but many around the world are marginalized in other ways, too. They are disproportionately minorities in the countries where they work, and many are migrants. I would like to introduce you to one of them. Before the pandemic, when I could still travel, I spent some time interviewing gig workers in South Africa, and that included domestic workers. So here's Tembi. I caught up with her one afternoon after she finished work in a shopping center in Johannesburg.
2: I'm from Zimbabwe. I came here in 2008. That's when I got my first job. I was working in the south of Johannesburg. And then I worked uh, for the family of uh, five, three boys and then their parents. Unfortunately, their mother passed away. I worked them for about eight years and after their mother passed away they didn't have a job and everything wasn't well for them they couldn't afford to pay me that was in 2013. I didn't know that I was underpaid long working hours I was you know my working condition wasn't good but I was just working because I thought as a migrant I don't have any law or anything I worked for them for eight uh, years. After those eight years, I didn't get any service pay. I didn't get any single cent. But I couldn't go and report because I was afraid. I thought maybe as a migrant, I don't have any rights because I didn't know anything. And then after that, I had to leave them. When I left them, they went to the police to report me that as a migrant, I stole. Really? Even
1: after you worked for them for that many years? Yes
2: because they didn't pay me, they didn't give me anything. They were left with nothing. So as I left them and then they tried to report me to the police because they wanted me to be sent back home. They didn't want me to Mm. be in South Africa.
1: So tell me a little bit about what actually happened. Did they report you to the police?
2: Yes, they did report me to the police. We went to the police. I proved myself and I explained everything to the police. And then they told me no. You were not supposed to work for them for this long. So I was told like that they released me, they didn't arrest me. They saw that they were lying to me just because I'm a migrant. Tembi was luckier than she
1: might've been. She had papers proving she was legally in South Africa. So she was able to stay and found another job with a family that treated her respectfully. We'll hear more from her in a bit, but for now, let's go back to Elizabeth Tang she helped me understand that this is the biggest population of workers worldwide that you'll never have heard of, possibly well over 100 million full-time workers.
0: Every time when I go to meet people, I usually start by asking the audience, how many of you employ domestic workers part-time or full-time? And usually I, I get a quarter of uh, the people who raise their hands. So actually, uh, there are more people who employ domestic workers than we realize. But we, we don't know because the domestic workers work in private homes, so we don't normally see them. They are not like drivers or teachers. We see them where they go to work, but they are in isolated households, and 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 they are invisible. What was that number that the ILO said were the number of domestic workers? Seventy five point six million. So doesn't it feel
1: like it actually is much more than that?
0: Yes, because they are invisible. And lots of countries also do not have proper statistics of the domestic workers population, because uh, in most countries, domestic work is still not uh, recognized as a group. Elizabeth
1: and I talked about how these unrecognized workers are uniquely vulnerable to being exploited, even trafficked.
0: Women usually go through private recruitment agencies who who will arrange the papers and trouble and then bring them to different uh, places of the world. But in most of these uh, destination countries, there is no legal protections of of the rights, of the working conditions of these migrant domestic workers. So they end up going to countries uh, where they don't have any protections, and they easily become a uh, prey of human uh, trafficking as well.
1: I've known and worked with Elizabeth and her colleagues at the International Domestic Workers Federation for many years, and there's something that's always troubled me. You know all that supply and demand stuff we're taught in economics classes?
2: Labor is like any other commodity in the market. Increase the demand for it, and you increase the price of it.
1: Humanity has always had excess demand for care workers, Frankly, we never have an excess supply of care. And today, with the pandemic, families are struggling, and there's a rising need to care for children, for sick people, and for the elderly. So why aren't these the most valued workers of all in our economy? Well, for one thing, we have a long and ugly history of meeting our demand for care by enslaving workers. The term for it is domestic servitude. And it exists right under our noses. I'm going to introduce you now to a longtime friend and colleague, Ambassador Louis C. DeBaca. He served as the State Department's ambassador at large to monitor trafficking in persons for many years. And he's now a law professor at the University of Michigan. He's an expert on modern day slavery. I asked him to help us understand Who gets trafficked into domestic servitude and how?
3: One of the first cases was a case involving a Filipino diplomat. This would have been in uh, the 1990s. And when I say diplomats, I don't just mean people who are at an embassy, but also those who worked for institutions such as the World Bank. Those are people who get brought over. The United States, but they are not themselves diplomats. They are the servants of diplomats. And as we were standing up what became the fight against modern slavery in the 1990s, we started seeing a number of folks who were running off um, and trying to get help in the community in Washington, D.C. And we were working with uh, folks from the Institute for Policy Studies. Uh, or, <laughs> I yeah. mean,
1: I laugh, Lou, because I have a story about that. So I'm going to yeah, interrupt please. and tell you, and then we'll talk about your case. My first direct experience working on domestic servitude was precisely when I was pulled into that campaign that IPS was doing called Slaves of the World Bank. And you will remember Joy Zaremka from IPS discovered that I spoke Indonesian and said, great, there are a bunch of Indonesian maids in this housing complex in Annandale, Virginia, that are working for Saudi diplomats and we need somebody who can talk to them. Can you come with me out to like Annandale? Now, Lou, you have just have to picture this, right? Obviously, I was much younger. I was eight months pregnant at the time, so I jumped in to her little vehicle. We drove out there, and she was like, "You are perfect. No one's going to suspect you. Just go chat with them." So I chatted up a, you know, handful of uh, Indonesian domestic servants, uh, and surreptitiously handed them little phone numbers and notes. And a couple of them did call us and we were able to assist them to a- escape from the situation that they were in.
3: Well, you know, so at that point I was a prosecutor and I was setting up the National Worker Exploitation Task Force. What was interesting is that we were making cases on the other side of town, up in the Maryland suburbs, with teenaged African children um, who'd been brought over by individuals who weren't diplomats or just a part of the, the business community cases like Evelyn Chompout, who is now a real positive, a big survivor leader, a good colleague of us. Tell uh, us
1: about her case.
3: So in Evelyn's case, it's one kind of a classic West African child slave case. She was recruited to come to the United States with an offer of being able to come to, to school. She was a young teenager at the time and ended up you know, having to walk the kids to the bus and then turn around and go right back to the house. And the kind of classic isolation, physical abuse, etc. You know, et cetera. In that case, the condition of servant certainly could have afforded a local domestic servant. She had a her cancer house in the Maryland suburbs and all of the appropriate fancy cars and, you know, everything else. And so it was as much about wanting to have control over someone as it was that it was any kind of a rational business decision.
1: Lou knows a lot about the past as well as the present. And while I've called this episode the world's oldest profession, the awful truth is that it's quite possibly the oldest form of slavery. Ever since people started to accumulate wealth, they had body slaves, personal slaves. I asked Lou, when in history did we start to realize that was wrong?
3: I think that we, writ large, humanity, modern humanity, perhaps. We didn't tend to see that until the kind of overarching system of racial slavery in the transatlantic world became understood as the human rights violation that it was. What's interesting about domestic servitude now is it exists in a post-chattel slavery world, and it persists, I think, because of these massive power uh, differentials between the people who suffer domestic servitude, and their employers. With the rise of the female upper middle class and the need for upper middle class respectability, especially in the United Kingdom, a lot of those women who were fighting their voice, these are white women in the UK at the time, were fighting their voice through activism around uh, slave-made sugar because they realized that was these consumer goods that were being brought in made by enslaved people in uh, the Caribbean. And what happened is that you started to get an understanding of the plight of the, the Black mother in the Caribbean that gets talked about a lot more and written about a lot more by British women in the early 1800s.
1: The other big picture question here is when... Was domestic labor first commodified? When did we start seeing it as a labor exchange?
3: I tend to think that is very much after emancipation. After emancipation, when there's much more of a you know, kind of exchange of value. And what's, of course, interesting is that especially in the African-American community, it ends up being a source of part currency that ends up counterbalancing a lot of the kind of post-emancipation re-enslavement attempts through debt bondage schemes and sharecropping. And so whether it's taking in laundry, whether it's working, you know, in someone's house, being a domestic servant or a cook was a very empowered way of African American women accessing the economy. And I think that's something that we, in retrospect, often end up missing it.
1: In the last season of this podcast, all my interviews were with ride-hailing drivers. But domestic work is different. It's more intimate. It's more personal. And it's more closely linked to coercion and slavery, both in the past and in the present. When technology and algorithms come into the picture... Things play out differently, and we have to understand that. So, Lou and I spent some time talking about the reason this is called care work and why it's so different than other types of gig work. We have to consider how people feel. Lou has spent much of his career working with survivors and had great sensitivity to how complicated the emotional ties
3: can be. I think that one of the things that we've seen with a lot of cases that I've worked on and people who I know, they end up feeling very excluded because they're not able to celebrate the things that normally you would if you care about someone. So, you know, the child's graduation is just, is seen by the master and mistress as something that you're just expected to be there working as opposed to celebrating the fact that this child that you've raised, that you love, has just on something amazing.
1: I asked Lou whether those emotional bonds made it harder for domestic workers to realize their rights under the law. He explained that there were carve-outs in U.S. labor laws, and one of the big exemptions is for domestic workers.
3: When you think about the legal structure around domestic work, it was of a piece with agricultural labor, and you think of those not as being the same unless you think about who was doing both domestic service and agricultural labor in the 1930s. and I think that some of that ends up just being flat out Southern racism on the part of the politicians in Congress at the time. But some of that also ends up being a misapprehension as to the level of emotional interconnection between employers and domestic servants on the one hand, And agricultural laborers often thinking about, they might be part of your children or your extended family, et cetera. And so they shouldn't be covered. And in both of those, you have that situation where there's kind of the idea that if you dare to ask for, you know, wages or fair wages for everything that you were doing, that you were dishonoring the relationship and the long-term interconnectedness of the families. And of course. The only party to that transaction that is offended by that is the one that would end up having to pay more. There's that cultural overlay that allows them to be offended and to not have to pay more.
1: Domestic work to this day is work on the edge of slavery. When it comes to the role of technology and platforms, it's quite a bit different than last season's story about ride hailing. I'm going to introduce one more person this episode. And that's Myrtle Whitboy. She's a force of nature and the force behind a global movement of domestic workers. Myrtle herself became a domestic worker at the age of 20 in apartheid South Africa. She started organizing in South Africa decades ago and founded a powerful domestic workers union. You can find my full interview with her on the website inequality.org. In this segment, she talks about how, after years of organizing and on the verge of retirement, she was talked into working with Elizabeth Tang to launch the Global Federation.
0: They say Myrtle, this woman at the side. They pull the, the, the international domestic workers uh, the International Domestic Workers Association Later, they say You must be the chairperson. I say sorry, the chairperson of this. <laughs> Yes, of the twenty of from different countries. Mother, you know a computer. I said, yes, I know a computer. I'm not going to tell them I don't know how. I say yes, I know a computer. I come back. I said, Emma, you must not teach me this computer. You know what? I said, God's sake, you're giving me a good break. I don't believe this. Now I'm a chair.
1: Myrtle's comments are a reflection on one use of technology. For workers like these, hidden away in people's homes and isolated from one another, an upside of digital connectivity is that they can actually connect. We'll talk more about these upsides as well as the downsides of digitizing care in the next few episodes. Before we leave today's conversation though, let's go back to Tembi, the South African worker that you met at the beginning of the episode. Not only does she have a better job now, she got connected with a migrant workers union and became an organizer. Listen carefully to hear how a social media platform played a role in that.
2: I was mobilizing them like in places where they work as I was working with them, some through social media, some, where I was working or wherever I was, some, they couldn't come in the open. They would start explaining to me like I'm being treated like this at work.
1: What was it like when you first started doing that?
2: It was nice to me because I found it as a hobby. I really enjoyed it. So I created a WhatsApp group to make things easier. And then when I was mobilizing them, I would give them my number. I would add them in the group. We'll continue chatting in that group. Like even now, the group from since 2013 is still running until today. I think we are more than 300 in that group. I just share the link to everyone. So if everyone gives someone the link and the the link goes on and on, so people, they come and join us and then the group is still growing and growing. As they come in the group, I explain everything to them. I tell them that we are a union. Are people worried about joining or afraid in any way? No, that's easy. I found it very easy because we are many here. So now they know, they're eager to know more about the union. Care
1: work employs hundreds of millions of people around the world. And without it, the rest of the economy could not function. It's also incredibly personal, involving our homes and our families and its work with deep links to the worst forms of exploitation and slavery. What can the future of work possibly hold for this sector? Can you Uberize care work? And is technology a curse or an opportunity? We'll be talking about all these questions over the next few episodes. You'll hear from technologists, researchers, even an ethical businessman, and of course, organizers and workers. And I'll share something I found a bit surprising with you Last season of the gig focused on a profession we think of as largely male, ride hailing Yet lots of the drivers I interviewed and all of the experts were women. Domestic work is so deeply intertwined with our assumptions about women's roles that I didn't anticipate just how many men I would end up interviewing, even male domestic workers. Just something to think about. I'm Bama Athreya, and you've been listening to The Gig. My producer is Evan Papp at Empathy Media Lab. You can support us by visiting our page on Anchor FM. That page is anchor.fm backslash TheGig podcast. You can find our previous episodes there too. The Gig is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. To check out more shows on topics like this one, just visit laborradionetwork.org.